0: And as a first time writer, you know, just looking at what this process meant, it was like, okay, so I'm gonna spend a year trying to find an agent to pay attention to me. And then we're gonna spend a year trying to find a publisher to pay attention to him. And then we're gonna spend another maybe year, maybe two actually getting into production. Maybe I'll have a book with a very small advance and no marketing budget.
1: Welcome to The Author Biz, the show that's all about the business of being an author. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and this is episode number 49. Wherever you are, however you listen, thanks for spending some of your time with me today. Today's guest is Michelle Miller. Michelle has an MBA from Stanford and worked for JP Morgan in Silicon Valley, New York, and Europe. Then she decided to leave that life behind and become a full time fiction writer. That's interesting in and of itself, but it's the businesslike approach she took to achieving her writing goals that I found so instructive, and I hope you will as well. Like many new authors, Michelle had a number of barriers to overcome no name recognition, no quote unquote platform, no agent, and no publishing deal. And this is where the story gets sort of interesting. Michelle went back to what she knew, her business background, to overcome those obstacles. In this episode, we'll talk about the path she chose and how the elements of that path can be used by anybody. There were a number of things that really stood out to me in this episode. Things like serializing your novel to build an audience, using guerrilla marketing techniques to create the kinds of buzz that lead to mainstream press coverage, and some pretty clever ways, as you'll hear, of funding her fledgling writing career. And we get into all of those. But I'd like you to pay particular attention to the way she answers the Will you please tell us about your new book, The Underwriting, question at the beginning of the interview. She gives one of the best and most succinct book pitches I've ever heard, and she does it in 35 seconds. Having a succinct and interesting elevator pitch for your book is something every author should have, but many don't. Listen to the way Michelle tells us about her new book. Her pitch has been honed for the past several weeks for television, radio, and podcast interviews, and it's really good. All right, enough with the intro. Let's get into the interview. Michelle Miller, welcome to The Author Biz. It's really great to be here, Stephen. You have, uh, in, in May, you published a book called The Underwriting. It's, it's one of my favorite books of the year so far. It combines some of the themes that I am most interested in life. It's, uh, it, it combines uh, finance, uh, Silicon Valley, technology, uh, but most importantly, it's a character study of a group of young people who are getting together in a business deal. So uh, can you quickly give us an overview of the book The Underwriting?
0: Absolutely, and thank you for that great endorsement. Um, So The Underwriting is a satirical corporate thriller about Wall Street and Silicon Valley. It follows the initial public offering of a location-based dating app. Um, And like you said, it's through the perspective of six characters, all under 35, all involved in this deal somehow, either from the Wall Street angle or the Silicon Valley angle. And as you can imagine, um, something goes horribly wrong with this app. A girl dies, and and things start to unravel. so we really see each of these characters deal with their worlds changing
1: as as this deal they were counting on starts to starts to unravel. And for someone who's my age, which is a lot older than your age, uh, I've, I found this fascinating because it was a, a really sort of an in depth character study for this group of young people, all of whom are very different.
0: I'm so glad that you enjoyed it because I think that, um, yeah, I did really want to tap into that sort of millennial digital age ethos. And what is it like to be sort of in your 20s post financial crisis, um, post 9-11 in this global world where online dating is a thing and kind of what's what's going on? in that mindset, um, in a way that both millennials would really relate to and feel like spoke to their context, but also in a way that people who aren't millennials could. (laughs) could (laughs) Oh, now I get it. it
1: Exactly. (laughs) All right. Now, you come from a business background. You have an MBA from Stanford. You worked at J.P. Morgan in Palo Alto, New York, and in Europe. So you know this world that you're writing about. And then sometime in 2013, you decided, eh, I'm through with this. I want to write a book. So... What was that about? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, how much time do we have? No, um, well, I think the real thing, I just got really excited about fiction mm-hmm. uh, and excited about kind of thinking through how you revive fiction for a new audience. I think that, um, unfortunately, fiction has has gotten sidelined behind, um, behind nonfiction media, which is seen as more productive. And frankly, I, I don't... Think that's true at all? I think that fiction taps into empathy and compassion and opens our minds to see the world differently in a way that that nonfiction media actually just makes us more set in our ways, um, if you will. And I think we're really seeing that through television. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the way that The Sopranos lends empathy to a character like Tony Soprano is mind blowing, right? Um, and yet, and yet we can't lend that same empathy to some of the characters we see on Wall Street. And so I was really curious in how you can use fiction to explain things, but also to create kind of a more compassionate mindset amongst readers. And then I really started thinking about um, why people don't read books anymore, and and particularly you know confronting the fact that I, as someone who grew up with literature and loved it so dearly, didn't read books anymore. And I came down to the fact that I spent a lot of time in the office. I, I was at work for 12 hours a day. And while I was there, I was reading the whole time. And, and I was staring at a computer screen reading. And, and even when I wasn't reading work or emails or Excel spreadsheets, I was reading blogs because I was eating my lunch at my desk. And um, by the time I got home in the evening, the thought of picking up a 400 page novel was frankly daunting (laughs) and I was tired of reading and also it was very lonely. It was in a social process and it, you know, people's lives are busy and so it was hard to kind of get a book club together or what have you. And so I really started thinking about how you could break that down and from there, you know, coupled with this desire to write a story about Wall Street and Silicon Valley came this idea of reviving serialization, which clearly has a great, great history via Dickens and, and Henry James and even Bonfire of the Vanities was initially a serial in the back of Rolling Stone magazine. But um, but I really got excited about that and how it might be a, a, a channel for bringing fiction to a new audience.
1: And. When you started writing the book, did you have the idea of serializing it in mind, or did you finish the book and say, I should serialize this?
0: No, I I definitely wanted to publish it as a serial first. I always wanted it to eventually become a book, Mm -hmm. and I eventually wanted it also to become a TV show, (laughs) which now that, that deal is done too, which is awesome. But I do think that serialization is really, you know, I look at it as photography, where where the novel is painting and uh and television is sculpture (laughs) you know they're very different forms and I do think that the serial required a different um a different approach in terms of writing writing style to keep that to keep that uh those arcs going every week
1: and the first thing that comes to mind for me when I, when I hear you say I, I, I wanted to serialize it first is the fear that many authors would have that, oh my gosh, if, if any part of the book has been published on the Internet first, no publisher is ever going to touch this. Did you, did you have that fear at all?
0: Maybe I was just too naive, but I looked at it as like, well, clearly that's the way to do it. I think actually that the more that you understand how publishers work – they don't. I, I don't think their economics are good enough anymore to really take risks. Um, and so I think if you can come to them with, especially as a first-time author as I was, if you can come to them saying, "Look, I just proved this many followers, but I need you to get me to get me bigger." I actually think they were really excited by that. Um, I mean, clearly they made me take it all down. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the fact that that I had proven that there was an audience for this story was really appealing to them.
1: Okay, let's walk through the process of serializing this, and, and I'm going to ask you some fairly in-depth questions, and then we'll get into uh, A, how you did it, and B, how other authors might be able to do this who might not be in a position to follow your model exactly. Right. But um, the first thing you did was to write the book. The second thing you did was to begin pursuing the idea of serializing. So. One thing that you did that that probably wouldn't occur to ninety nine point five percent of authors out there is you decided to go out and get this funded as though it were a startup.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, again, you kind of you fall back on what you know, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I have a new idea. Clearly I need venture capital. <laughs> <laughs> and so so this actually so I guess the process actually started. so back up. Um, I had this idea, I had this serial. I then found investors, I then went and wrote everything. I then started adding lots of transmedia elements to it. So um, so I pitched investors in like April of 2013 and that was partly because you know I understood my process well enough to know that there are certain pressures that work great for me and there are certain pressures that work terribly for me. And um, having people pressure and having time pressure is really helpful for me. Having kind of you know people that are looking to me, to to get something done and having, you know, a timestamp on when I have to have it delivered by, that helps me write. Having money pressure does not help me write. (laughs) And so by raising capital, I basically was able to, you know, pay myself enough to to eat for a year. And that that sort of aligned pressures correctly for me. I also just really liked the artistic idea of, you know, writing a book about startups that was sort of done like a startup. Yes artistically consistent which again was something that was important to me this is not this is not just a commercial (laughs) a commercial enterprise though I, I know it can be seen that way um and so so I found investors to to sort of again this idea that you can create audience online and then license back to traditional publishers and frankly um do it more quickly you know I think any author that I've ever spoken to is frustrated just by how long the publishing process takes. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that is really important. I, I editing is critical, but some of it, you're like, why, why am I waiting six months for, um, for, you
1: know, yeah, the, the book's done. Just, Why do I have to wait yeah, six months and, to sell a copy?
0: Especially <laughs> this content was so, was so, mo- I mean, it was so of the moment that for me that was particularly like, ah, oh, is anybody even going to care about this by the time it comes out? And as a first time writer, You know, just looking at what this process meant, it was like, okay, so I'm going to spend a year trying to find an agent to pay attention to me. And then we're going to spend a year trying to find a publisher to pay attention to him. And then we're going to spend another maybe year, maybe two, actually getting into production. Maybe I'll have a book with a very small advance and no marketing budget six years from now. You know, (laughs) And I'm I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm saying. And and by doing it this way, by putting it online first start to finish it took nine months and then all those other deals then i got an agent who i think really got my work he came to me i didn't have to like sort of go um interviewing lots of agents and and then the publisher really got it because she had seen seen what was possible and also seen the audience that the, the book appealed to and, um, and then that whole process just happened a lot more quickly.
1: All right. Let, let's go back to the raising money from investors. I've pitched yes. investors before. It's, right. it's not the most fun thing in the world. No. Um, you know, <laughs> you, you have your little elevator pitch, and then if they, they want more information, you have to dig into that. And, and then they may want a business plan. Did you actually have a business plan for this? Yes. And yeah. how long was the business? How many pages was the business plan?
0: Um, I had a deck. I had like 10 slides in my deck. I really did a lot of research. I mean, I did a lot of research on publishing economics, on sort of potential outcomes, especially, you know, if a book does really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of research around the history of serialization and a lot of theorizing on why it didn't work or why it had it kind of died and how it could be revived, um, and I think that was all helpful in the background. And, and then the pitch to investors was they get a cut of everything that comes out of the underwriting as a franchise. So basically, uh, the book, all the online sales, any of the things that I did online, which included brand sponsorships um, and, and other revenue streams. And then also, um, so every week with the cereal, I had a brand sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get a cut of that. They got a cut of the book deal. They get a cut of the TV rights, um, and then the plan is to do five in the series, so they'll really own part of all of it. It's, it really, now that I'm more into the industry, it's kind of like how you would finance a film, or how you would finance a film franchise.
1: It, it does kind of sound like that. And then, of course, you've got the action figures for people like Todd. And- <laughs>
0: <Exactly>. <laughs> oh, I keep waiting for Mattel to call.
1: <laughs> yes, because I think people are going to want to take that Todd uh, action figure and just stomp on him. <laughs>
0: You'd be surprised how many men call me and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm totally Todd Kenton." I'm, like, yeah.
1: I'm oh, not fast. surprised. So fascinating. Let, let's go back to the investors again, because yeah. you, you mentioned that you raised enough money that you could live for a year without financial pressure, but there were a lot of other things that were going on. You built a website. There, this was not just, uh, let's throw up a WordPress website and do this. Right. Um, you went into this in a big way. So I'm assuming that you hired uh, a web developer right. and um, you had uh, graphic artists and, and all of this. So by bringing in the investment capital, you had the money to do those things without tapping yeah. into your own resources.
0: Right, exactly. So, and and we should talk about, so the whole process, it was sort of, um, or the way that that it ended up working when I serialized it in, I guess, March of 2014 Mm -hmm. is when we started. So every week I would release an episode. I did build a website. Every Wednesday we would release an episode. It was free to read for 24 hours um, on the web browser, or you could buy it as a text or an audio file. And then, like you said, with and um, and so this free window I think was really important Mm -hmm. because I think that people um will pay for content when they feel like it's their fault for not getting it for free. And I think that that's something that a lot of people miss. They say, Oh, no one wants to pay for content, or and on the other hand, you know, you're constantly managing this, no one wants to pay for content, but on the other hand, if you give it away for free, then it makes it seem cheap.
1: Yeah, you're right. The the free window, the idea of doing it for a limited period of time, um, it 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 does put it all on the reader. If they're not there on Tuesday afternoon or whatever it is, then then they have to pay. And and by then, hopefully, they're hooked and they will.
0: Right. And I think that even even if they're not, they have this. There's just this psychology, and I feel it with myself, where I'm like, oh my bad, you gave it to me for free, but then I I just missed it, so I'll pay for it.
1: And did the free. Readers also have access to the audio, or was that only for the paid readers? No, so
0: the audio was a paid thing.
1: Okay. Mm
0: -hmm. All right, so so basically that's how the basic model worked. And then there were all these, like you said, transmedia elements that came onto it. So I created business cards for all of my characters that were sort of the bios. Um, I had DJ playlists every week. Um, I had artwork and photography. There was a video trailer. We had um, an escape button up in the corner so when you (laughs) press the escape button your screen filled up with What looked like work, but was actually all related to the contents. Every week there was like an Excel spreadsheet, but it wasn't really Excel. It was Tara Taylor's food journal. (laughs) Every week there was a a web browser open to referencing different places within the text and an email that was to some, it, it was always a love letter from me to a celebrity with a large Twitter following who I hope to tweet about it. None of them did, but I still thought it was clever. That was actually my favorite part of the whole thing was the escape button. <laughs> um, so anyway, so that that all happened. Uh, and yeah, and I think it just kind of gave, it, it did two things. First, it, it created a bigger world around the text that was just fun and exciting and I think interesting for people who saw it. And secondly, it got a lot of people involved um, so by the end of the project, there were about 40 people involved, either as the, you know, the brand sponsors, obviously the artist, the photographer, the DJ, the video guy. Um, and they were all in different cities. So I was sort of strategic about that about getting people that were uh, that were around the world. And they all had a vested interest in posting it on their Facebook walls. And once that happened, it really started, it was able to spread a little bit more organically via social media, this, this project.
1: You were in banking, so I'm assuming you're a numbers geek. So when you were tracking all these, uh, what, was, what, what did the graph look like? Uh, was it going up week after week or did it, did it plateau? How did all yeah. that work?
0: Truthfully, there was a big drop-off after week one, as I think you would always expect with content. Um, you get a lot of people the first time, they check it out, and some of them stay and some of them don't. Um, and then it stayed really steady, which was great. Um, and then we had a big spike in week six. We did a binge viewing, so we, we gave away all the episodes. We put up all the episodes for free for two days. And then we had a big spike, and then it grew a little bit from there. Um, but what was interesting to me was that, <laughs> that a lot of people said, and, and I just got a lot of emails from, from friends who had kind of picked up on it saying, um, love it, I'm waiting to binge on it, mm-hmm. which is such fascinating language to me because these are mostly people who don't read books. And they were like, I can't, like, I just want to get to the end so that I can binge on it. And I, and I kind of I wrote one of my friends, Max, back, because he, he was one of these adamant, I do not read novels. I'm really supportive of you, Michelle, but like, <laughs> I don't read fiction and I don't read novels. And he was one of these people who was like, This is so great. I can't wait to binge on it. And I was like, Just so we're clear, you know that by binging, you will be reading a book. I was like, yeah, but it feels different. And so I think just even tapping into the way that language has changed around that is really interesting. So even with that drop, I didn't freak out because I did know, and I think that's proved out, that a lot of people were just waiting to have it all at once. And that's fine for me. There are people who like reading serially. There are people who like reading at the end. Um, I think you, as a creator, give them the opportunities to do that.
1: How important, when, when you looked at the metrics, how important did it seem like the other elements were to the readers? You know, were they were they listening to the music? Were they were they looking at the videos or were they just reading?
0: Um, So I really approach the underwriting as a throw everything against the wall and see Mm -hmm. for future projects what what's interesting and what works and how you do it. and so I think if I if I did it again, a lot of the elements I'd would probably do more with brand sponsors for this one, and more on the business cards, and more on like the finance tutorials. And I probably wouldn't do the DJ playlists, even though I thought they were really cool. But I don't think they were super additive, and they weren't super additive because they didn't fit this content as well. Now. Now, and whereas brand sponsors, there's so many brands in this book because it's so kind of of the moment that mm-hmm. that really makes sense for the underwriting. So, fast forward, now I'm working on producing other serial projects in a similar vein. And there's another project that I'm doing that's super music heavy. And so, of course, that one, the, the, the playlists are going to be front and center. Like, that's a critical part of them, uh, of that that project. And there's another project that's a bit more literary and highbrow, and brand sponsorships don't really make as much sense in that one. So, So that'll be less of an element. So I do think with all of these things, you know, where you lose readers is when it doesn't feel authentic to the content. And I think that's where... A lot of projects like this get derailed because, because the marketing and the and the text and the art get too, get too segmented out. They all have to go together in a way that's really consistent and clear. Um, otherwise, I think people see through it.
1: Be- because this is all down now, the publishers ask you to take it down, um, mm-hmm. we-, we can't actually see it. So describe an episode, like what it looks like. Obviously there's text, but you have all these other elements. Are they at the bottom? Or are they interspersed uh, through the text? How, do- how does yes. it work?
0: Again, that's one I'm really excited to now be working with people who, <laughs> who uh, have a little bit more resources and more understanding of of how to make it all really fluid. Um, but in the The page itself, basically there was just a free window that showed up every week, every Wednesday you could click on it and said kind of read episode one free now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and the video was off to the side and then at the bottom were links to various elements that linked to different parts of the pages. When you actually went to the reading window on Wednesday that was free, there was a place for comments on the side and the DJ playlist was super accessible. And then all of the photography was super well integrated um, into the work, and the escape button was up in the corner. So I think <laughs> the, the website looked really slick. I, um, it was a lot to ask people to learn, but, but again, you kind of... I think with all of this stuff, you expect there are going to be different levels of engagement. There are people who are only going to read the, the free window. I mean, there are the people who are going to, like, tune in and say, oh, this is cool. I'm going to wait for the book. Mm-hmm. There are the people who are going to tune in every week and read the free window. There are the people who are going to get so excited about it that they that they find every little detail and, and really explore all of that. And I think you kind of, you know, you step back and you say, great, like, however people want to experience it, that's that's up to them. You know, it's like you, you you walk into a museum and you see some people are just there for like the coffee, <laughs> some people skim right by the Van Gogh, and other people sit for two hours and really like have a have a metaphysical experience with it. And so, and I think we have to let go of wanting to control how people experience our work, and just make sure that we're uh, we're putting it out there in a way that that has lots of levels for people to enjoy.
1: That is really well put. Uh, did you, as, as the process was ongoing, uh, did you like between episodes 7 and 8 say, wow, people are really reacting to this, let's emphasize a little bit more of this in the future episodes, or did you just go with it the way you had initially had it planned?
0: It's so interesting you say that. I have had so many conversations now that I'm in this serial world. Because <laughs> <laughs> believe it or not, there is a serial fiction world um, of people sort of who have an approach of right as you go, take user feedback versus my stance, which is 100% finish it all beforehand and don't change anything. Um, and that's just my process. And I think it's, it's really dependent on your process. I... I am so much of a control freak. There's no way that I could take could take feedback and go and write as I go. I need to have the whole arc, you know. Because I don't know when I'm writing, you get to chapter eight and you're like, and you discover something about your character that you didn't realize, and all of a sudden you go back and you rewrite everything about him. And so I can't imagine mm-hmm. kind of getting to chapter eight. I would just get so upset if I had to, if I had missed an opportunity because I was changing something in chapter eight that didn't make sense.
1: Now would you, would you then? Look at the different elements that are embedded in the pages or the way they're embedded in the pages and make changes to those based on reader feedback? How do you mean? Uh, like add more images or take out the music <laughs> or move where the comments are, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely a future goal of mine mm-hmm. is to have someone uh, who's who's on top of that. <laughs> 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 totally honest between you and, and me and all of your listeners. Um, you know, I didn't have a... I was, I was, there was a lot to do. Oh, yeah. Those 12 weeks. Yeah. <laughs> And I had an amazing, amazing woman, Brooke, God bless her, who, uh, who was helping me kind of manage, uh, the, the social media and the PR and everything. But, um, but, you know, we had to set our priorities and unfortunately we didn't do as much as the analytics and we didn't really have the funding to that stuff does take a lot of, a lot of money to, to change in the background. Um, but it's something that I'm really interested in exploring. Yeah, in and a lot future. of a lot of
1: moving parts. All right, another thing that you did was while this was all unfolding, you did some pretty interesting guerrilla marketing type things <laughs> that are a little outside the norm for promoting a book.
0: <laughs> yes, indeed. So, uh, so the number—I mean, the the great thing, you know, again, it's a book about the IPO of a location based dating app. And um, when I started writing it, Tinder wasn't a thing yet, but clearly Tinder was blowing up by the time it came out. And so we had Tinder accounts for all of my characters, and Brooke and I would sit and uh, and Tinder with men in New York (laughs) (laughs) to get them to read the underwriting. We had a rule that within three flirts, you had to... um, you had to, we had to mention the underwriting and that was fascinating and hilarious and created a lot of just good content, um, in itself. So we did that. Um, there was one, (laughs) one week where I had a friend who was like, you know, what you should really do is, is spray paint your logo all (laughs) over New York In front of, like, investment banks especially, that would be great. Because I wanted bankers to read it, you Mm -hmm. know. This was really my dream was that people would read it at the office at Goldman Sachs, and I'll be talking about it, um, and create little book clubs within the analyst pod. And so it turns out that you can't spray paint legally in New York, but you can spray chalk and so we got um, we got stencils and spray chalked in New York and staged a video wherein I got arrested, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, which drew a lot more attention than, uh, <laughs> I didn't know what that said about me, that people were so excited to, <laughs> that I got arrested. Um, but that was really fun. We hired some girls off of, some cute girls off of Craigslist to hand out, you know, episode one printouts. In lots of banker bars in New York, um, so yeah, we did a lot of we did a lot of guerrilla marketing, and it was frankly really fun. And um, and it's the sort of stuff. It's hard to measure the impact, but but I do think that that it makes a difference.
1: And how much of this, how much of the marketing, because there, there was a great deal of marketing done for this book. Uh, I, I shouldn't say marketing. There's a lot of promotion done for the book. There were articles back in, I don't know, late 2014 in major magazines, uh, interviews with you, things like that. How much of that came from your efforts? How much of that came from the publisher's efforts?
0: Oh, well, that was all pre-publisher. So that was, uh, that was me and okay. hitting the pavement you know, again, I think that in, in publishing, you have to give people something else to latch onto. Um, and and by doing something differently, by thinking outside the box, by kind of doing these, you know, the Tinder thing, Cosmo was like, oh, that's really cool. Maybe we'll write about it, you know, in a way that they wouldn't have just written about the book. Um, and so I do think that it, it, it's worth the effort for that PR just to give a slightly more interesting and to be cognizant as a creator of like, how can I get extra mileage out of this thing? How can I, you know, maybe I'll get more readers out of it, but maybe I'll also just get attention for it that will then drive attention to, and and, and it's through the attention on what I'm doing that I will get the readers. Does that make sense? It
1: like does. You always does. have
0: to be thinking in those dual modes of, even if it doesn't immediately convert to sales it might get attention that will then convert to sales.
1: And one of the things I notice about almost everything that you do, all of the marketing for the book, um, the, basically, and I, I'm not sure where it's coming from. I don't know if it's you or if you've got these great people advising you, but an example of being really, really clever with with, as a way of dealing with the problem, your name is Michelle Miller. It's, mm-hmm. it's not the easiest domain in the world to get. So what most of what most Michelle Miller who are authors might do is is look for Michelle Dash Miller or Michelle Miller Dash Author or Author Dash. You, you know what I'm getting at there. You didn't do that. You came up with a really clever URL that uh, five weeks after you and I originally spoke for the CrimeFiction.fm interview, I remembered it. And so I didn't have to look you up. I just remembered the URL. So can, can you share the story of, of coming up with that? Oh, that is
0: so... Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so and my URL is hashtag M.M.,
1: which is not just the hashtag; it's the word hashtag, hashtag mm. MM.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't actually have a hashtag in in the URL. Um, that is so so funny. That was like an afternoon, and my publisher was like, "You have to have a website," and I was like, "But I don't know what the domain name should be." <laughs> <laughs> and I um and so yeah, so I just came up with that because it felt like it kind of went with with what I was trying to communicate. It was, you know, the hashtags. I think the hashtag is just such an interesting punctuation mark in general, and, and what it represents in the American ethos is just tagging things is so interesting. And so it's kind of like, all right, everything on this website is going to be tagged, tagged my initials. Um, and people increasingly call me MM. That's, that's, um, <laughs> that's a nickname that has, has come about. But I do think, you know, to be honest and to be vulnerable for a minute, um... I had a really hard time and I think a lot of the serialization and getting everyone else involved was for me this this fear of it being about me and this fear of self-promotion, which is a funny thing because I think a lot of people are like, oh, you're so good at self-promoting. You're like, oh, that feels so dirty. <laughs> um, and it's so not true because I'm so self-conscious about it. Um, and, and I think I finally started just realizing you have to how do you how do you think of yourself as author as a character and like and i've started to think of myself and and my brand as an author or creator or whatever that is just like thinking of it as a character that's a totally out of body experience of just like all right michelle muller is equivalent to tara taylor is equivalent to todd kent how do i make her seem consistent so that people can latch onto that or know or know what to do with that and and unfortunately i just think that we're in an era if you really want your work to to be noticed that you have to be cognizant of yourself as a brand which again is something that just sounded so dirty to me for so long and that i resisted but i do think that there's a way of approaching it that is um that can be really
1: consistent One of the things I noticed in in everything that I saw from you, I never got the sense of it's, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's, this is interesting, this is interesting, this is interesting, which I think ties back to what you're saying about uh, yourself as a brand and looking at yourself as a brand. And while that may seem creepy and weird, it, it also takes it away from the hey, look at me thing because I didn't get any sense of that coming through at all and, and so much author marketing is, hey, look at me, please buy my book. And you, you sort of turned it on its head where you were able to accomplish all those things, but do it in a way that was appealing and drew people in.
0: Mm, thank, you for, thank you for saying that. Um, you know, it's, I think now we're getting kind of, we're getting kind of uh, metaphysical in the sense that I do think that, um, that everything just has to be authentic and real. And I feel like the time, you know, there's so many, there's so many times in this process where I did things purely to get readers. And like, I was in that mindset of like, I just need to get readers. I just need to get sales. And I was really like focused on that and it never worked. Mm -hmm. never worked. But the times where I was just purely in love with what I was doing because I just thought it was really like interesting and cool to me. Those were all, and I was just totally in lockstep with that, with that mindset. That's when I did things that I think actually moved the needle. Um, and it's, and it's kind of because I lost a little. I was aware of what I wanted the outcome to be, but I wasn't purely focused on the outcome. I was really just focused on making a really good authentic product. And um, like the escape button, I think is one. Like I did that. I don't care if... I really did not care if no if anyone ever saw that. I just thought it was <laughs> really
1: funny. <laughs> and I thought
0: it was something that, like, should exist on my site. and And I just really liked it. And it ended up probably being, like, one of the most popular things on the website. And so I think there's kind of this constant struggle that every artist feels about being aware of the numbers and being aware of the fact that you need it to be read and being aware of all these things, but also never losing sight of it just has to be... Really good and really authentic and um, and that, that authenticity I think increasingly is just what people latch on
1: one of the things that you did that was I, I think falls into this authentic non promotional yet really clever um, was a video about how to think like a man. <laughs> And I thought that was just hysterical, and my wife was leaning over my shoulder as I was watching it, and we were both just howling at it. And it's it's the kind of thing that uh, – I don't know how, how well-planned it was, but it, it's – it had nothing really to do with the book <laughs> other than the fact that it had everything to do with the book because this is the way some of the characters thought in the book but uh Correct. it was really it was it was really clever and it's just one of those things you do so many <laughs> you you have done so many really clever things as a part of this thank uh,
0: you <laughs> yeah so that video was basically uh Someone asked me how I get into the perspective of my male characters, particularly Todd Kent, who is this total alpha male mm-hmm. who doesn't really have a lot to do with my own life. And, um, and I said, well, basically, I shut off 80% of my brain and I commit half of what's left to sex. And so I was writing this article about it and I was talking to a friend kind of about that blog post and she's like, that's really a video. And I'm like, you're right, that, that's totally a video. And, uh, and so, so we did, we put this video together called how to think like a man, but again, that was something that was so pure. I just mm-hmm. thought, I thought it was funny <laughs> and she thought it was funny. And my friend who shoots videos thought it was funny. And so we did it one afternoon and it was really fun and it was funny. And, um, and it did, it ended up getting picked up by red book. So I do <laughs> think there's that, you know, again, you come back to just like, what, what delights you? Because if it delights you. it it might delight your audience,
1: too. All right. You've mentioned a few times now that you're sort of involved in the serialization world. So it's not just for your book. It sounds like you're probably advising other authors on how to do this, uh, how to do it effectively. If you were to advise our listeners who might not have access to investment capital, um, but who, who like the idea of serialization and packaging their work in in a way that's different and stands apart from everything else uh, that they're competing against. what What would your advice be?
0: Yeah, um, I think you have to be incredibly audience aware. And by audience aware, I don't mean commercial. to me, there is there's commercial and commercial is saying, what does my audience want and giving it to them and giving all the power to the reader? And that's, you know, Vampires, And it's why there's so many vampire books, because people say, oh, we want more books about vampires. All right. I'll write more books about vampires. <laughs> and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's purely artistic. And that's I don't care at all about my audience. I just really want to write this. And I think everybody should. I really care about this subject, and I think everybody else should, too. And I don't really give a shit what you say. I'm going to do it. And then there's this space in between, which is where I like to play, and I don't think it's for everybody, but it's certainly where I like to play, which is this, I'm gonna know my audience so well, and I'm gonna understand their movements, and I'm gonna think about who they are and what they care about, and then I'm gonna write a story that kind of takes that a level deeper. So if, if my audience is someone who is working, you know, in an investment bank, going to Soul Cycle in the morning, single on a dating app? How can I write a story for her? And then that, that to me is what's interesting because is that creates a dialogue. And so I think that once you start thinking about that audience person and every time you're writing or you're doing anything, you're thinking about how does this fit into their day and their life and their world and making sure that that's authentic with, you know, what you want to be doing and finding an audience that fits who you are too. Um, then that, that is where interesting things happen
1: great that, that makes a lot of sense um, for for people who are intrigued by the idea of brand sponsors brand sponsorships i didn't pursue it when you were talking about it earlier uh, mm-hmm. be, because I think you were working at a different level than a, a lot of our listeners might be if they were approaching uh, a brand sponsor for something like a a serialization of a novel or even a novel. Um, How would you recommend that people pursue brand sponsorships?
0: Again, I think it's one of those things that any brand is going to look at who is your audience and have you proved that you can get to them. And so if you don't have a clear understanding of who, who your readers are, then, uh, then it's a Mm -hmm. (laughs) non-starter frankly, or if you don't have numbers to back it up, then it's a non-starter. And so I think that's where being online and having an online presence, um, and having here are my Instagram followers, here's who they are, or I just put up this, this episode and here's the breakdown. And you can see all of that with Google Analytics very clearly, that that's what brand sponsors really like. Um, I also think there are ways to get around that, right? With the underwriting, I didn't have, I hadn't proved it yet. And so with a lot of these brand sponsors, rather than just getting a check cut, um, I did a revenue share where I said, all right, well, let's offer you know no cost up front to you, but let's offer a discount to uh, anybody who buys the underwriting. So if you bought episode one you got a discount to that brand site and then we did a revenue share on the back end of it of any sales that I generated for them. Right, So there are lots of ways that you can kind of make it low risk for both parties um, if you don't have that audience yet. But I think the real goal is to get is to get the audience.
1: You know, it, I, I, it sounds like I'm talking to a technology investor. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's so funny
1: and I say that as a compliment <laughs> you.
0: Well, it's, you know it's nice for me writing about technology because any of the stuff that I explore worst case I learn something that I can then put into one of my characters and my books so
1: <laughs> alright one last thing and then I'll let you go you mentioned the TV series yes uh, tell us about that tell us about the process and uh, what, what you've gone through and, and exactly where it's at
0: Yeah, so we just um, announced a deal with Indemol Shine, which is a big production company um, that I could not be more excited to work with. Uh, And I'm actually, they bought my pilot script, so I'm attached as a writer and an executive producer, which is thrilling um, because I really wanted to stay involved um, and to get into, to just learn that world. I find television so fascinating right now. Um, But yeah, I think that It's a tricky process. Basically, you sell the rights, and you get an option. Mm -hmm. um, And the option is either to a production company or to a network. And if you go network, then they find a production company. If you go production company, then they find a network. And um, the option is basically a pretty small amount of money, but it gives them the exclusive rights to move into production
1: for 12 to 18 months. And you wrote the pilot yourself?
0: yeah so that's so kind of on the right side there's the option and then there's also this the other side which is if if the author wants to have any involvement then Mm -hmm. you write a pilot and, and you have a separate contract for um for producer and writing services if the again if the option translates into a production um so yeah so i wrote the pilot and it was really really fun um to kind of explore that medium again. You think you know your characters and then you try and write a <laughs> script out of them. And you're like, I don't know what Nick Winthrop's bedroom looks like. I haven't <laughs> really thought about it. Um, and it just has to be so much more efficient.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: thing is so much tighter and, and that's really fun to play with.
1: Well, Michelle, congratulations on the book. It is absolutely fantastic and I really think it is the ideal summer read. Oh, Thank you so so much. So thank you so much for coming on and talking about your new book, The Underwriting. We've mentioned your website, but let's uh, let's give it again. And I know you've got an email list that people can sign up for if they're interested in hearing more about this.
0: Yes. Yeah, so it's hashtag MM spelled out S H A S H T A G M M dot com, and and yeah, they can access my website um, or my email list on that
1: site. All right. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. That was terrific. I really love the approach Michelle took to launching her writing career. Now, obviously, she has some advantages to her background that some of us don't have, but we all have things in our background that we can take advantage of. So it's unlikely that we could follow Michelle's exact path, but we can learn from what she did. It's always interesting to learn from the way other people who are doing things a little bit outside the norm are doing things. The idea of using serialization as a platform builder is unique, and it's not unique. As Michelle mentioned, it's something uh, that's been going on throughout literary history, and people are doing it today. It's just that Michelle did it a little bit differently. She did it particularly well by pinpointing her exact audience and building a process that would appeal to them. Let me make one last plea for you to create and practice the elevator pitch for your book get really comfortable with it, be able to rattle it off whenever anybody asks you about the book. I've interviewed 150 plus authors over the last couple years. And in every author interview, not only from me, but pretty much from anyone who does these, whether it's on television, podcasts, radio, wherever, you're asked to describe your book. I have to say, I don't normally get the kind of answer that Michelle gave. And that's why that stood out to me so much in this interview. So if you can get your book's elevator pitch to the point where you can give it succinctly and make it interesting, that's a huge advantage to you as an author. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Show notes, as usual, with links to everything we've mentioned, are at the AuthorBiz website. Have a great week in your AuthorBiz, everyone.